And I want to invite Simon to come on up and lead us in the scripture reading for today's sermon. So our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 2, and it begins at verse 11. And we're going to hear the name Cephas, and Cephas is also named, known by the name Peter. So if you hear Cephas, it's... So, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men, uh, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for that reading, Simon. That was very, very nice. Um, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Les, and I have trouble with microphones. There, that should be okay. Can you, can you, can you all hear me? So Pastor Eric um, just wrapped up a series on Ephesians um, last week. And if some of you remember, a few weeks ago, we dabbled into another of Paul's letters, and we, we, read, we just read from that today. And that was Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. Uh, in the book of Galatians, we find Paul writing in quite a different tone, and we saw that when we talked about it uh, the last time. He uses a different tone when he talks to the Galatians as he did to, say, the Ephesians or the Romans. Um, and that's because Paul is a little shocked. If some of you were here when, when I last preached on this uh, subject, Paul was a little shocked because he had planted a couple of churches. He had been church planting in a region called Galatia, which is in Turkey today. And he had gone away, and then he had heard that these early Christians in the early church had begun turning away. They had begun losing step with the gospel, and this troubled him. And if you think about it, this is a situation that isn't too much different from what's going on today, whether it's anywhere in the world, whether it's in Galatia, in Turkey, or whether it's here in Hong Kong. So one of the questions I want to pose, actually there are two questions I want to pose to all of us this morning, and the first is this. In your life today, in our lives today in Hong Kong, what do you have to do, what do you have to do in your life today to feel like you have enough? What do you have to do in order to feel like you have enough? 
And I think here in Hong Kong, there are a few common denominators we think of when we strive to attain something to feel like we have enough. There are a lot of these common denominators. One of them is having a job, right? Another is having an income, having a good income. Uh, for, for kids here and for teenagers here, it's about getting into a good school. You want to get into a good school, you want to get a good education. If you're uh, a parent here, you want your kids to have a good education, don't you? Uh, there, there's all these things. There's, there's also money. There's uh, maybe a car. We're heading towards, you know, wants and not needs now, right? And, and we, we, we tend to buy into this idea where we need that one more thing, though, because once we've attained, what if you have all those things? What if you've, you've got a good education, you've got a good income, you've got a big house, you've got no mortgage, you've paid it off, and you've got that car that you always wanted or that motorcycle you always wanted. Um, but there's one more thing, that iPhone 14 Pro Max. I want that. And maybe, and we, 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 we tell ourselves, and maybe the world tells us, or our friends tell us, our colleagues tell us, tell, tell us, that if you get that one last thing, maybe, just maybe, you've had enough. Do we do that? That's the first question. The second one is this. Who were we trying to please? So by, by endeavoring to attain these things, recognition, riches, money, education, comfort, safety, who are we trying to please? So today we'll be continuing to look at the book of Galatians, uh, specifically in chapter 2, what Simon read earlier. And we'll be looking again at a central theme, one of the themes of Galatians, which is this, that the pure, unadulterated version of the gospel is really all that we need. So today's sermon is titled, Is Christ Enough? And we'll look at three points today. The first, is, uh, the first one is, Fear Leads Us and Others Astray. The second is living by faith together. How do we live by faith together? And the third point is the world changes when we realize that Christ is enough. But before that, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word and for the writings of Paul, whether to the Ephesians as we've been going through or to the Galatians. Lord, I pray, Lord, that your word would speak to us this morning. God, as we turn to your word once more, God, I pray that the words from my mouth, Lord, would not be mine, but they would be divinely yours. So speak to us, Lord. We, we listen in anticipation. We listen with our hearts, Lord. Come and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point, fear leads us astray. Let's take a look um, here. If you will, uh, I don't have the verses up here, so I'm going to challenge you to take your phones out. Um, what, I'd go, what I do is I go to Google and I type um, Galatians 2, 11 to 21. You can just type Galatians 2, and then you can scroll down, and we'll, we'll look at it together. So Galatians 2. Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he tells them here in chapter 2 about an encounter that he's had with Peter. And he refers to Peter here as Cephas. And as um, Simon rightly pointed out, Cephas is a Latin name given by Jesus to Peter, and it means the rock, right? Peter the rock. So that's, that's his name. So when you see Cephas here, it means Peter. So turn with me, if you will, to verse 11. Paul's talking about Peter in Antioch. And if, if you're not sure where Antioch is, it's what is now called, in, in the present day, it's Syria. And I like to do this because I like to, when, as I read the Bible, I like to imagine these places, like, 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 I like to imagine the scenes. I feel like it helps me understand it. So, so Syria, it's in the Middle East. It's a little sandy. Probably lots of people coming from different cultures and different languages. I don't understand what they're saying. Verse 11. But when Cephas, when 
Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He stood condemned. This, again, this is Paul's, Paul's tone in this letter is quite different from the rest. He says he's condemned. That's pretty, a pretty strong term. Now, something, had been, something amazing had been happening in the early church. So imagine Antioch, Syria, and you've got different people, different cultures moving in and out. People look different, different ethnic backgrounds, different um, cultural backgrounds. And what was happening in the, early, in the time of the early church is these walls that we used to define each other began crumbling. They began coming down, these proverbial walls. At the, at the time, the entire notion of being righteous with God was by adhering to the law, specifically the Ten Commandments. If you could obey the law, you were right with God. And the more of these laws that you can obey and the more of them that you can adhere to, the more right you are with God. At least that's how the Jews felt. And what about the non-Jews? They were Gentiles. Well, the Jews didn't really interact with the Gentiles. They didn't sit at the same table with the Gentiles. They were considered outsiders. They were considered filthy. They were uncircumcised. But now, the apostles had begun traveling and building churches and spreading the good news of the gospel. So these walls started crumbling. And this is the situation that we're looking at right now. Peter is seated at a table with Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? Peter, a Jew, right? A giant in the Bible is seated with Gentiles. And why is that happening? Because the, the, the message that is being preached is this supernatural love of Christ, right? This New Testament, this new supernatural love of Christ is what unites us. And so Peter was seated with Gentiles, and this is what was happening in the early church. And then let's look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And when they came, when James came in, when the men came in, he drew back, Peter drew back, and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So imagine this, you're in Syria, you're in this room, you're having a meal with the Gentiles. That's what Peter's doing. And then suddenly some other Jews walk in and he gets up. Peter gets up and he walks away. Why did he do this? Can we relate? He gets up and he removes himself from the table of Gentiles. Verse 12 said he did this fearing the circumcision party, fearing the Jews who were circumcised because he was a Jew himself. And what was he doing? Seated with the table of uncircumcised men. Why did he do this? What did he fear? Well, maybe he feared rebuke. Maybe he feared being judged by the OG party, the original gangsters, the original group. Maybe he felt ashamed. Maybe he was just afraid of what they would say about him. Maybe all the above. Now I have to confess, um, when I prepared to share a sermon like this, I spent quite a bit of time meditating on the passage. And I had to, when I was, when I was going through this specific part of the passage, I had to sort of sit down and spend a little bit more time with my eyes closed meditating on it because it really, really uh, hit me. Because I could feel Paul saying this to the church, we're led astray when we fear. Because that's what Peter does, right? The moment he feared what others would say about him, he walked away. He was led astray. This could be particularly true for us if, uh, if we talk about a work situation. For instance, we come in here, on a Sunday morning like today, and you know, we're, we're, we're happy to see each other, 
You know, we say hi, good morning, we greet each other, uh, we talk about joy and we're singing, we watch our language. And then what do we do on a Monday morning when we go back to work? I don't know what your work culture is like, but my work culture, for those of you who know me, can be a little toxic. You're permitted, probably even encouraged, to swear because it helps you release. Right? Can anybody identify with that? So you're all nice and happy on a Sunday, and then on Monday morning you go, up, you go to work and you open your laptop and there's a gazillion emails, and your work culture, your corporate culture, says it's okay to look at the gazillion emails and swear like a sailor and use the Lord's name in vain. And it's not just about work, right? It's about school, right? You come here and you, you think, well, I've got to obey, right? I've got to be a good, obedient uh, youth or child, and I've got to watch my language, and I go back to school, or I meet up with my friends on a Sunday afternoon, and I'm just going back to my old ways. I'm just trying to abide by a list of rules. And as if that wasn't enough, as I was meditating on this, um, I felt God saying this, that you know, we swiftly disassociate ourselves from the gospel so quickly that it's almost by default that we forget about it. And it's not just about work, is it? It's not just about school. It's not just about our social circles. The next question um, we ought to be asking ourselves is, are we doing that in church? Because if you look at the passage, Paul's talking to Peter, who's sitting at a table with new believers who just happen to be Gentiles. They're believers. Paul's not talking about us walking away from church and then being pulled back by the world. He's talking about right here in church, among other believers, in our homes. See, the problem with doing that is we modify the gospel, don't we, sometimes? And when we do that, we create these artificial lines, these man-made lines, these man-made bars. And what happens when we do that? We end up creating superiority. We end up saying, you're better than I am. Or, yes, I believe in Jesus and you believe in Jesus. But, you know, there's this one more thing that you need to do. And that is not the message of Christ. If you notice here, Paul's talking to Peter. Peter. And if we're forgetting who Peter was, uh, a quick reminder, if you go to the Vatican City today, that big basilica there is St. Peter's Basilica. It's named after him. This is Peter, the apostle who walked on water. This is Peter who, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, thousands, 3,000, some say 5,000 turned and accepted Jesus and were saved. And if Peter himself could get up and walk away from the Gentiles, if he could walk away for fear of being judged by circumcised Jews. How much more could we do that? How much more have we already done that? Turn again with me now to uh, verse 13. Let's look at verse 13. It says, And the rest of the Jews, this is after Peter gets up and he walks away from the Gentiles, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. And Paul says, So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas. Barnabas was Paul's buddy. It's like Paul's buddy. They traveled together and they planted churches. They spread the good news together. Barnabas himself was led astray by the hypocrisy. So, Peter, uh, so Paul's talking about Peter and Barnabas here. Let's think about this for a second. They're not, they're not people who have denied Jesus, who have walked away. These are people who love God. These are people who love Jesus. 
And I think what Paul's saying to us today is this, when people who love Jesus forget the gospel, they are led astray. But not just that, when people who love Jesus forget about the gospel, they lead others astray. It's not just about us. We're led astray, but others are led astray too. Our friends, our colleagues are led astray. Our families, our kids are led astray. And we end up being destructive. Our church ends up being led astray. Church, our fear of what others say, our worldly weakness, our tendency to default back to that, makes us hypocrites, and we end up distorting the gospel. And we end up forgetting what the good news is all about, the pure, unadulterated form of the gospel. And when this happens, we need to turn back. We need to come back, as we're doing today. We need to come back to the gospel. We need to turn back to the word. And we do this together. We come back together to the word, which is the second point today, living by faith together. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do we live by faith together? What does it look like? Paul explains it in, in what I call groundbreaking theology here. I don't want to delve into it yet. Um, there's, there's an important point that stands out today before we look at that theology. And the, the important point is this, friendship and community. And I think it's so important. It's such an important part of this message here. When Paul sees Peter's hypocritical behavior, what does he do? If you look at verse 14, it says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though you're a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? What's Paul doing here? He's correcting him. He's rebuking him. But he's not putting him down. And I think it's important for us to realize this. Paul doesn't put him down. He... he, he He's upset. It sounds like he's upset, but he doesn't shame him. He doesn't say, Peter, you're this, you're that, you're a sinner. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't belittle him. He doesn't flex authority over him. And I think that's a wonderful reflection of our God. I think God loves us so much that he wouldn't belittle us. Paul's looking at Peter the way God looks at us, through God's eyes. And that's very encouraging, and that's wonderful. Earlier we talked about, you know, distorting the gospel and not being in step with it. it. It leads others astray. The message of Christ, as Paul's trying to remind Peter about here, is one of unity. It's not about walking away from the Gentiles. It's about being together at the same table and sharing that moment with joy with, with Jesus. See, Jesus' kingdom is made up of friends. Barnabas was Paul's buddy, as we talked about. In fact, most Christian scholars today would regard the friendship between Peter and Paul as faithful friends. Isn't that wonderful? Faithful friends. In Jesus' kingdom, friends don't, don't put each other down. Friends steer each other back to the cross. This is what Paul did with Peter. And it's a reminder for us today here at the church. We need community. We need fellowship. Because of the gospel of Christ, because of the gospel of Christ we are called to be a community like no other. So back to the theology. What's, what's this theology that Paul's talking about? And I'd like to think that Paul is essentially saying this. Circumcision, be gone. Right, that's what he's saying, right? Circumcision, be gone. The old law, all these restrictions, be gone. Legalistic policing, enforcement of this law of the Ten Commandments, no, be gone. Stop trying to rescue yourself. And the term I want to use here is self 
rescue as opposed to savior rescue, right? Stop trying to self-rescue. Trying to achieve perfection will only lead you to, to death. And that's, that's, let's, let's look at this. He, he breaks down the theology like this. He says it's like a journey. And in this journey, you would have to experience death. That's how difficult it is. You have to experience death twice. Let's, let's turn to verse 19. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I'll read it one more time. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Sounds like complicated theology. Uh, what Paul's saying is this. If you continually try to obey the laws, the Ten Commandments, and you continually, I mean, let's face it. If you looked at the, the Ten Commandments now and you tried and you told yourself, I can, I can do I can obey all these things each day, every day. Can anybody claim that they can do that? No, I can't do it. We can't do it. If you try to obey the law over and over again, you're bound to fail. Now, I'm not saying, we're not saying hate the law. We're not saying, you know, you don't want to hate the Ten Commandments, you know. Um, in fact, the law, the law is, is good. In fact, uh, uh, Pastor Eric and I were talking about analogies this week. How would you describe the law versus the gospel? And the analogy that he shared with me, which I kind of like, is this. The law is like the frame of a really fancy sports car. I know some of you don't connect with that, but <laughs> that's, that's one that I really do, right? So the law is like the frame of a really fancy sports car. The gospel is the engine. So you can have the law. That's a good structure. But the drive comes from the gospel. I prefer a more fun analogy. I'm going to share that with you today. I, I like bathroom analogies. Okay. I won't be gross, don't worry, but I like bathroom analogies. And, and this is the one I like. The law is like a mirror. Okay? So you look at the mirror and it, you know, it gives you a good idea of what you look like. But a mirror is not soap. It doesn't cleanse you. Bathroom analogy. The gospel is soap. The gospel is soap. It alone can cleanse you. And he says here, when he talks about death, you can, you, you can keep trying to obey the law. And at some point, it'll be so crazy, you'll want to kill yourself. In fact, the only way you'd be able to obey the law would be to die, right? Because if you die, you, there will be no transgressions. You won't be doing anything wrong. That is the only answer. That's the only way you could do it. That's the first death. Remember I said death twice? The second death is this. Let's look at verse 20. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Oh, I love this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said earlier, stop self-rescuing. We cannot basically live by self-rescue. Only Jesus rescues us. The second death, the second death is, is not a physical death but it's a death of, of yourself, of your selfish self. The more crucial part of this is what happens after the death. Because in the past, we always think of death as the end, but that's not the message of Christ. The more crucial part of this death is what happens after. We die, but then Paul says, the new life I now live, verse 20 again, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The message is not about death. The message is about resurrection, resurrection with Christ. With Christ, yes, it seems like we die twice, but with Christ, we are alive. We are resurrected with him. And we, we need to remember that 
when we think about our faith walk, it's like the J curve we, we talk about here. You've got to die. You've got to go down, but then you, you are risen with Christ. You rise with Christ. We need to remember that this, this faith journey, these J curves that we go through in our, life are, in our lives are constant. They're not a one-time deal, right? We'll be learning this faith journey as long as we're alive. The cool thing is we do it together. And when we see our fellows and, uh, fellow brothers and sisters um, being led astray because they give in to the fear of the world, when we see our brothers and sisters here in, in church or in our families, when we see them mistakenly modifying the gospel or being caught up trying to live by the law again, which will happen by grace with love, as Paul did with Peter, we steer each other back to Christ. We help each other come back and surrender at the cross once more. Church, what are the areas in our lives where we forget to be crucified with Christ? What are the areas at school or with your friends or in your social circles or at work or here? What are the areas where we have forgotten to be crucified with Christ? Are we tagging on additions and modifying the gospel? Are we saying you need the proverbial circumcision to be a Christian? Or are we steering each other towards Christ? Are we forgetting to be crucified with Christ in our families? Are we failing to show that to our children? Are we failing to help steer our children to Christ? Are we living knowing that Christ is enough? Which leads uh, to the third point today, which is the world changes when we realize that Christ is enough. When we live knowing that Jesus is enough and we're not led astray, we have no fear. We sit at the table with the quote-unquote Gentiles in our lives. We don't even think about it. We already saw this happening in the beginning of today's passage. We talked about walls being broken down. That's the message of Christ, right? We live in a world with walls. We live in a world where we have man-made structures. We have man-made bars that, you know, that we set for each other, for ourselves. And in the early church, those walls were coming down. It's just some people entered the church again and started talking about the old ways of doing things, and we stumble and we fall, and we go back to our old ways. I mean, just think about... Just think about the situation in Syria. You've got people coming from different lands with different languages who look different, and then you've got different social structures. You're a merchant, you're a beggar, you're a landowner, you're a lawyer, you're a tax collector. A tax collector would not sit with a beggar. We can imagine that, right? The reason why we can imagine that is because it's not too different from the world we live in now. But imagine what it was like back then. Peter seated, Peter, Saint Peter, right? Peter seated at a table with Gentiles. And who's invited to this table? Everyone. The merchant, the tax collector, the king, the beggar. All welcomed at the same table. All celebrating with joy that they're saved by grace. That they're saved by Jesus. This is what's powerful about the gospel. It levels the playing field. Because the good news is for all who believe, not just the Jews. And this is, as, as we said, this is as profound today in Hong Kong as it was in Antioch in the time of Peter. A community like this, if we, if we all acknowledge that Christ is enough, then we're all part of this community. And I use the word supernatural again. Uh, it, it becomes a supernatural community and you start seeing some really amazing things. 
right? Because it's a community that crosses all lines. It crosses cultural lines. It crosses, it crosses income lines. It crosses language barriers. It crosses economic lines, age group lines. It crosses all those lines because if we all know Christ is what we need, we're all unified. We're all in unity. And that's powerful, church. That's why I call it supernatural. It's powerful because this solves many of today's problems. If you just take a moment to think about the problems we're facing in this world, this is the answer. If you want to stop racism, this is the answer. This will stop it. If you want to stop superiority complexes, this will stop it. If you want to stop bullies at school, this will stop it. If you want to stop fear of what other people would say, of what the world would say to you, this will stop it. The fear that leads us astray, this will stop it. Church, Christ is all we need. Jesus is all we need. Is Christ enough? Yes. Will we come to him this morning in reflection and reaffirm that as we turn to his word again? Will we steer each other with love and grace to the cross each day? Will we encourage each other to no longer live in fear, but to live in the freedom that Christ gives us because of what he's done on the cross? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the writings of Paul, Lord, and the way he breaks things down for us. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give us, Lord, wisdom, Lord. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you tell us and you remind us this morning, Lord, that we, in our walk with you, Lord, are still prone to stumble and we're still prone to fall. God, we need you and we need your love. And we need to realize, Lord, help us realize by breaking us down each day, Lord, to know that you are all we need. We don't need to measure up to worldly standards. We don't need to measure up with each other's standards. We don't need to measure up to our own standards because all we need is you, God. God, I thank you for the, uh, the community, Lord, that you put us in. I thank you, Lord, that we're bound, Lord, together by cords that cannot be broken because, Lord, of what you've done on the cross through Jesus. God, give us the, uh, the wisdom to, to encourage each other Teach us, Lord, to love each other more each day. Teach us, Lord, to steer one another, Lord, back to you each and every day. God, we thank you that you are a loving Father. And because of what you've done on the cross, Lord, even when we embark on this walk of faith, and as we go through it every day, Lord, you look at us, Lord, with loving eyes, and you love us, so that each time we fall, Lord, you're there to bring us back, and you send us as a family to help each other come back to you. We praise you, God, and we thank you for your word this morning.